Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. In this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little, is within our power? The end. Let's talk about Emily Dickinson. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1886, Carl Benz patented the world's first vehicle that was powered by a gas engine. The Statue of Liberty was dedicated in New York Harbor. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was first published. The typewriter ribbon and aluminum metal processing were both invented. The first magazine for nurses, The Nightingale, was published. George Seurat completed his painting, A Sunday Afternoon on the Isle of Grand Jatte. Born this year, future blues legend Ma Rainey, future entertainer Al Jolson, future white horse riding suffragist Inez Mulholland, and future flash freezer Clarence Birdseye were all born. Franz Liszt and John Deere both died. And in 1886, upon her own death, Emily Dickinson's legacy and myths were born. Emily Elizabeth Dickinson was born on December 10, 1830 in Amherst, Massachusetts, the second of the three children of Edward Dickinson and Emily Norcross Dickinson. Mama had an extensive education. Her own father had helped to found the co-educational Monson Academy, and she attended this rigorous academic school for 12 years and then was sent to finish for a year at a boarding school in New Haven, which I just want to say right here at the beginning of our episode that Mrs. Dickinson comes in for a giant bucket of slander. (laughs) (laughs) That's Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I was going to say a different word, but then I wasn't because that's not how I am. (laughs) Um, You'll read that she was unintelligent, was boring, was painfully ignorant, which is to do this woman a disservice. I don't think we should perpetuate. The episode is not about Emily Dickinson's mother, but I just want to make certain that we know that she had a brain. It was trained. She loved science. She loved literature as a young woman. And her husband saw her as valuable to his life. She was intelligent and articulate and a well-bred lady. And this is my opinion only. She may have suffered from what we see in all of these times that we have talked about on this show. Days gone by where female education becomes fashionable from Queen Elizabeth's time to the Gilded Age to the women's colleges of the 1950s. Women receive an excellent education in a time and place in which she had no real way to exercise her education once she was done with it. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so frustrating. And she was also an older daughter in a large family with an invalid mother. So marriage was out of the frying pan and into the fire. It may have been her only avenue to exercise her talents in any way. And her suitor was persistent. So I just, I'm sorry to come right out of the gate flying the flag for Mama. But as we will see later, she did use her brain. I just think that she has gotten such a bad rap. Well, maybe we should also say at this point that a lot of what we know about Emily Dickinson is just pulled from her letters. You know, it's just pulled from pieces. She left no journals. So like, I don't know, the Bible, three people can read one sentence and have a different meaning from it. (laughs) There's no way to know exactly what happened in her life. 
Well, and also, I would like to throw us all back on, for example, corporate life and how you sometimes put down in <laughs> just angry messages to your favorite coworker mm-hmm. um, your side of a story. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> and if your side of the story is the one that gets saved in a box, yep, such is history. Yep, especially the history of Emily Dickinson, <laughs> I would say. Papa Edward's family go way back in American history. The Dickinsons came from England to practice their Puritan Christian beliefs in North America in the 1600s. So the Dickinson family history runs parallel to American history. We're going to fast forward to just right after the Revolutionary War when Samuel Fowler Dickinson was born. Emily's father, Edward Dickinson, was the oldest of nine children of the Samuel Fowler Dickinson. He was called Squire Fowler around town because he was that important. The Dickinson family helped to found Amherst, Massachusetts, and Squire Dickinson helped to found the educational system in the town. So he was a lawyer. He had been a minister. He was in politics. But while all that was his vocation, his passion really was education. Amherst Academy, his brainchild, was a co-educational school of great rigor and depth and um, so radical for 1814 to have the lady persons included. But I will tell you, it wasn't 1814. They didn't allow lady persons in until the female seminary burned down. That's a little (laughs) thing you got to do a little more digging. (laughs) It started out as, as a boys' school. But... Grandpapa did have strong views on female education, and I quote, Daughters should be well instructed in the useful sciences, including a thorough knowledge of our own language, geography, history, mathematics, and natural philosophy. The female mind, so sensitive, so susceptible of improvement, should not be neglected. So we can maybe give him a pass on that vague misogyny there at the end (laughs) because he spent so much of his time and, as it turns out, money to help fund this school and Amherst College, which, ladies and gentlemen, did not accept women until 1975, by the way, other (laughs) female institutions not having burnt down conveniently. But education in general was grandpapa's quest. And Emily's papa had a lot to live up to, especially as the oldest son. Edward, of course, attended school in Amherst. He went to Amherst Academy, then Amherst College. Then he went out of state and went to Yale, and he emerged from there a lawyer. He practiced alongside his father in Amherst. And as we all know, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a law degree must be in want of a wife. (laughs) When exactly Emily Norcross and Edward Dickinson met, it isn't known. It could have been in New Haven. Well, he was attending Yale and she was on her finishing school year. We don't know. We know that they did start to court after he'd gone to Munson on business. Their courtship lasted for two years and most of it was by letter. Emily didn't want to leave Munson. She was very close to her family. Her own father had helped to build the educational system in Munson, just like Edwards had in Amherst. So their letters back and forth were very heavy on letters from Edward and very light on replies from Emily. 
It doesn't mean that she didn't want to write him back or she was playing coy. Maybe she just didn't like writing or maybe she was so busy in town because she was very involved in, you know, months in social life and months in church life. Everything that went on in town, she was there. Well, also her mother was sick and she had a lot of younger brothers and sisters. And this oldest daughter thing, I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, she took the mantle of running the household. And like, I'm sorry, I would be so peeved if people kept badgering me like, well, I didn't get your letter. I would be like, <laughs> Charlie. Well, and then those <laughs> those letters from Edward, a lot of them spelled out what he expected of a wife. You know, his ideal wife, kind of like, this is what I want you to mold yourself into. He said, quote, She should be amiable, virtuous, prudent, and intelligent, and benevolent. She can hardly fail to draw blessings on herself and on her household. Like, oh, is that it? (laughs) That's nothing. Well, so (laughs) if Emily Norcross had been born in a different time and received a text like this on whatever (laughs) dating site that people go to these days, she would have swiped the wrong direction and we would never have had Emily Dickinson, the poet. (laughs) That's right. For sure. But as those options were not available to her, she probably sat there and went, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, that's me. Okay. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, reading that sort of job description in those days was probably more like, well, at least I have a checklist to follow and less what we would consider now to be like, he really said what? Yeah. (laughs) Red flag. Red flag. (laughs) Emily never visited Amherst until she was married. She was 23, Edward was 24, and their first couple of years were just establishing her in Amherst and establishing their home. They didn't have a child until three years after they were married. But the first child was a boy. Hooray, said Papa. Check, check. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do on my own checklist. (laughs) They named him William Austin, but he went by Austin, which sounds like such a contemporary name. Yeah, last names is first names. Yeah, it could have been Norcross, I guess. Back in Munson, Mama Emily had a younger sister named Lavinia. She was almost the exact opposite of Emily. She was witty and very unconventional. Um, She would go on to marry against her parents' wishes. But at the time, she was still single. And when she was pregnant, she took care of Mama Emily. And (laughs) she wrote her later, It is enough to make anyone discouraged to see what all the married folks are coming to. (laughs) I want no part of that pregnancy and marriage thing. This is ridiculous. (laughs) If legend is correct, as her bedroom was being wallpapered, Mama gave birth to Emily Elizabeth Dickinson a year and a half after Austin. So I'm just imagining her like, you know, coordinating things going on around the house. While she's delivering a child. It struck me as funny. So I'm assuming they kicked out the workmen, like sent them down for a cup of tea or <laughs> something. Right, at the, at the crucial like moment. they weren't just sitting there looking over like, man, sucks to be you. Yeah. Or it could just be legend. I don't know. I like to think of it. It's it's a funny image. Well, mama was handling her business. <laughs> she was. Lavinia, Vinny, everyone called her, named after her not a black sheep aunt, but gray sheep aunt, was born three years afterward in 1833. Now, the family received a giant blow when Emily was about three years of age. Grandpapa had overextended his finances in pursuit of the new college. 
a little lifeline was handed down. Papa's cousins sort of held the mortgage for a few years, you know, like kind of put a marker on it, like put up their quarter, like, all right, we're going to keep this in the family for a while. But eventually they could no longer do so. And Grandpapa had to declare bankruptcy. Earlier in his life, Squire Fowler had built the family homestead, and that's what it's still called, the homestead. It was the first brick house in town. It was on a hill overlooking the whole town, surrounded by fruit orchards. Lovely. The Edward and Emily Norcross Dickinsons and the in-law Dickinsons lived in this house together. They were separated by a hallway until Squire Fowler's fortunes just bottomed out. The homestead had to be sold out from under the family. And Grandpa, a broken-spirited man, took up a position in a school in Ohio. Which was founded by Harriet Beecher Stowe's father. You know, it seems like everything gets interconnected (laughs) after a while. (laughs) Can we get to St. Louis? Can we get to the Chicago World's Fair? I I just don't know. It might be a stretch (laughs) on this one. But but yes, uh, Common Threads. So it became Emily's father's mission to right this wrong. You know what I mean? Not revenge exactly, but redemption. So that's taking along in the back of his mind. Anyway, Emily's family stayed on as tenants in their own home, no longer sharing the space with grandparents, but with merchant David Mack and his family. So they had the eastern half of the house and the new owners had the western half. Well, it's a big house. It is. (laughs) Yeah. But still, seems awkward to me. Emily, of course, would only be vaguely aware of this due to her age. She spent her time, more valuably, wandering the countryside and getting giantly dirty, which in my mind is the mark of a well-spent youth. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Both of her parents were expert gardeners, and they passed along their own love of plants. This is a time and a place where even gentlemen's residences had their own humble or not, kitchen gardens to supply the house with a little variety. You're not going to be able to go to the grocery store. All the children learned early a love for gardening and toddled around after their parents tending to the plants. When she was four, Emily began school at the town's primary school. It was reading, writing, and arithmetic all taught by rote. So fun. Puzzled together from her later poetry and letters, it sounds like she was a very animated child. She wrote in a poem once, they shut me up in prose as when a little girl. I mean, like she was talking and they put her in a closet. So um, on brand for a kid who's spending all of her time, you know, climbing cherry trees. Yes. And also on brand for you. I mean, think of the school in Little House on the Prairie. I know it's decades later, but like Mrs. Beetle is not going to put up with people capering about. (laughs) No. You sit, you shut your face, you do your lesson out of the one book that everybody's doing. And as a reward, you get to write your lesson on the blackboard. I mean, like, yeah. (laughs) Okie dokie. So Emily, um, yeah, was stuck out like a sore thumb at that work. Papa had made Mama an early present of Mariah Child's book entitled The Frugal Housewife, in which our illustrious author has written the following. In this country, we are apt to let children romp away their existence until they get to be 13 or 14. It is not well for the purses and patience of parents and has a worse effect on the morals and habits of the children. Begin early. A child of six can be made useful. 
So from an early age, Emily and her sister were taught to mend, to clean, to work in the garden. Make your own bread and cake, says the frugal housewife. That's, in fact, the side of domestic life that Emily took up as her own as she got older. But another stricture in the realm of economy that comes up later, and I quote, preserve the backs of old letters to write upon. We shall see that in action. The fact that Mama and the family kept their old envelopes in a drawer ready for use for scribbling Mm -hmm. as scrap paper comes straight out of this book. (laughs) Honestly, you can read the whole book online. The sheer weight of expectations would break you, would break all of us. Not only were there no machines to help you, we already knew about that. You had to concoct each and every specific cleaning solution, medical preparation with things you had grown yourself. So have to have a back off table for when you plant that and how you tend it and the solutions you need to make for those plants to grow. I mean, talk about a mental load. We complain about Christmas. (laughs) And the mental load that lady persons of the house, I'm sorry, I'm being, you know, you know, I'm just know. being sort of facetious and also humorous, whatever. I know many men like Christmas. Well, don't write me. But, <laughs> but, um, but like the mental load is so big. I mean, food preservation was both essential and timely and complicated. I mean, eggs had to be stored under a certain solution. For some reason, everyone was panic stricken about the cucumbers and the powers the cucumbers had against you if you didn't preserve them properly. I don't know. Everybody's been afraid of cucumbers. Every time we talk about food, I might have Weird. to look into that. Is that how, I, I wasn't aware of this. Is that how pickles came to be? Yes. Oh, because it was the preservation of cucumbers. It was the preservation of cucumbers. And it also, and I quote, takes away the slimy nature. They were so afraid of the slimy nature of the inside of a cucumber that it was yeah. almost like, please put them in salt and it'll make them different. <laughs> Now, if that was okra, I'd be on board. <laughs> okra. Ugh. <laughs> I know. So anyway, I love this book. I actually do love it. Um, it, you know, naively says things like, the best catsup is made from the tomato and gives you <laughs> a recipe. <laughs> what other? So a fish ketchup. There was walnut ketchup was oh. actually very popular. Okay. I only know this because I used to do some work for Heinz. So, oh. um, <laughs> so anyway, just like just think about a world in which you have to make every cleaning solution in your house. You have to have known to save rags for rugs. You have to know mm-hmm. to save the straw for hats. I mean, Emily Dickinson, when she was an adult, dismissed her mother as, and I quote, non-intellectual. And just think about everything I've just said. Mm-hmm. You know, and the direct quote is, my mother does not care for thought. Well, your mother ha- has a head full of thoughts. They're just not the thoughts that that you want her to have. She probably had no time for anything but collapsing on her bed <laughs> with a wet washcloth that she's woven. Because you know? her daughter's coming in the house yet again, covered in mud and <laughs> trekking it across the kitchen floor. But expectations were high for Mama not only to pull all this off, but to educate your female children in all of these economies, or you have failed them. So, I mean, the pressure on Mama was very big. She's not drifting through life aimlessly, just persisting and not thinking. So, you know, how many times can I say, poor Mama and (laughs) and the legacy that we have. So Emily and Venny were dragged reluctantly into domesticity from an early age. 
it's safe to say that book and its philosophy were writ large in the Dickinson family. <laughs> Something else from this book, just as a side note, I, ha- I have such an obsession with this book. Please go read it. Um, okay, so there is a famous painting of all three Dickinson children, and it looks like Emily is somewhere in the range of seven to nine years of age in this painting, and all of the children's hair is short. And I know there has been a comment on that. Um, you know, you're used to girls having long hair. And in that book, The Frugal Housewife, it says to the Frugal Housewife's audience that it's best to keep all of your children's hair short until they reach about the age of nine. Um, Less trouble, less tangling, less work for a mother. And I think the implication is the girls don't have to look cute yet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's right. No one's going to be taking pictures and putting them on their Instagram of your kids. So. Mama Emily really bought into this book, just like you. It must. I, I'm going to go read it now. I didn't read the whole thing. So. Oh, I read it. I'm not buying in. I'm going to oh, go no. buy 409 at the grocery store, <laughs> and I am going to just eat my eggs fresh out of the styrofoam container. <laughs> you mean you're not going to make vinegar and water vinegar that you actually had to make yourself? Out of the apple cores that I didn't eat? Oh, my gosh. About this same time that that portrait was painted, Emily's father had been elected to the Massachusetts legislature. That meant that he spent a lot of time in Boston, and it's not just down the road. He was gone. He was gone from the home a lot. So in addition to having all of these household responsibilities, there's this big hole. Papa's gone. You know, he's not home very often. Right, right. Now, when Emily was about nine, Papa's business in town had become successful enough that the family was able to get out from under their odd rental arrangement and move to their own house on North Pleasant Street, right next to the town cemetery. At last, Mama had the charge of her own establishment. One of the first things the Dickinsons did at the new house was to create their garden. Even Papa and Brother Austin were all in. Fruit was their specialty, fruit trees. Uh I always think fruit is advanced gardening. I mean, they had an orchard, they had grapevines, they had fig and apple trees. Fig is hard to grow in New England. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were high level gardeners. I had raspberries that I got out of a forest and transplanted over here and planted. And you know what I got from them? Incontinent birds. (laughs) Because I never did manage to get to the fruit. And I hated the look of the big cage in the backyard. So (sighs) I could use a Dickinson fruit tutorial. Um, But yeah, fruit is hard. And they were all in on that. They had a cutting garden, a vegetable garden, herbs for medicinal and flavoring purposes, flowering shrubs to make the air smell beautiful, giant fir trees, which I think were already there, but um, made a big impact. They have a nice sound when the wind blows. (laughs) I just want to point out here that during her, you know, Disney Channel coming of age formative years, Emily Dickinson's two nearest strongest influences environmentally that you can see out the window were the garden and the graveyard. And so much of her poetry happens to be about what? The garden and the graveyard. Mm -hmm. If it's coincidence, hmm. Emily's bedroom overlooked that graveyard. So while she's sitting in her room daydreaming and avoiding her chores, (laughs) she's looking at this cemetery. And cemeteries are just wonderful places to walk around. I mean, not now for the history. Back then, they were new tombstones or newer. But just they're just beautiful and quiet. And I'm sure that was a lovely thing for a kid. 
Well, in a time before parks, cemeteries were actually used for a lot of things. I think we talked about this during the Bronte episode, Mm -hmm. that much was made of the fact that Charlotte Bronte looked out and saw the the graveyard. And in her case, a lot of times the ladies of Charlotte Bronte's town would hang their laundry on the conveniently tall gravestones. (laughs) So you would look out and there would be like, you know, petticoats waving in the breeze. I'm not sure that happened. It seems like Amherst would be more um, refined than that. Well, yeah, more. So, tech- I'm not sure. More technologically advanced in that they have what rope? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Now here I have a quick poll or a request for input from the audience. I, at the age of about nine or ten, was through the influence of Laura Ingalls Wilder, very, very interested in history. Very interested. Emily Dickinson has the cemetery and the garden at nine or 10. Is what you were into at nine or 10 a part of your life now? I'd be interested to know. Oh, that is very interesting because at nine, we were cooking dinners, full dinners for the family. We each had a night, and I'm, you know, I go back and forth (laughs) on how much I like cooking, but sure, that's definitely a part of my life. No question about it. Yeah. And my grandfather had a wonderful garden and I loved going there and just walking in it and, you know, picking his fruit and stuff. So, yeah, I definitely interested. That is such a formative age. I never really, oh gosh, I wonder what my kids were doing at nine and 10. Oh no. <laughs> well, mine was jumping off of stuff. I can tell you, we, we are there. <laughs> mine was probably, one was reading books and now she's a librarian and the other two were playing sports, I guess. Interesting. Quick, let's commission a study. Let's get a grant. (laughs) Somebody somebody, should do that. Yeah, I don't have any more time. That's right. Somebody do that and tell us what happens. (laughs) Well, Emily Dickinson began her studies at Amherst Academy. Um, She wrote the best compositions in class, according to herself. (laughs) No, not only according to herself, according to one of her teachers. Okie doke. I'll give her that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) He actually wrote her compositions were... Now, this is long into her life. Her compositions were strikingly original and in both thought and style seemed beyond her years. Okay. Fair enough, Emily. I'm sorry. I retract my statement. And in one of her letters, she said, I am always in love with my teachers. Ah, So she loved school. Yes. Well, she added Latin, which was relatively unusual for girls, by the way, geology, mental philosophy, what is that? And botany. Oh, botany. I love, I love, Susan, that this class did field work, literally in a field. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of their teachers were men straight out of Amherst College. So they were young and fresh and enthusiastic. And the kids, all of them, boys and girls, and the girls did not have to dress as boys to go. They were all encouraged to attend lectures at the college. That was a callback to the show, the Dickinson. Yeah, that is something that is different in the new Dickinson show for now. The the ladies were completely welcomed into these lectures. They did not have to sneak in or put on boys' clothing to come in. Now, I will say there was a bunch of dismissive commentary like, well, I don't see that it does any harm to the ladies' brains. Right. I'm like, okay, thank you. I guess I'll listen to your lecture on whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyway, so they were allowed in the room. I guess we have to curtsy and thank them for that. 
But one thing that she did in her biology class was very fashionable at the time, was to make something called a herbarium. This is a scrapbook of flora. It's pressed flowers and plants with the Latin names and what kind of plant it was, just like your own personal book about plants, the things that you found. And she loved doing this. She loved it so much we can still look at them. Right. I well, she that. and her friends were more scientific with the the labels. I have framed pressed flowers of my grandma's. Um, that hobby is gaining popularity again. Really, all you need is a flower and time and say a any biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Ask me how I know. Choose your book for heft. Um, or a certain biography on Emily Dickinson, which was five pounds. Yeah, some of these you could press a sunflower in. But anyway, so um, yeah, I think I might try my hand at a couple of pressed flowers. Emily was very social. And with four other girls that she met at Amherst Academy, they became longtime friends and she would be correspondence with them for the rest of their lives. Specifically, Abaya Root was her bestie. That was her best friend. And she and her just did everything together. And she was the recipient of all of Emily's notes. There were five of them, and they called themselves Circle of Five. It was a clique. Mm. And on the periphery of that clique was a girl named Jane Humphrey, who Emily was very fond of. She actually lived with the Dickinsons for a while while attending Amherst Academy. I am only saying that because she's in the show and she's kind of a snob in the show. <laughs> but in real life, she was not. Emily Dickinson wrote to one of her friends, and I quote, I will be quite the belle of Amherst by the time I'm 17. Then I will have a crowd of admirers. And with what delight I shall witness their suspense until I make my final decision. <laughs> so she's all about being in and out there. But at the same time, the commotion at home with visitors and students that boarded that were going to Amherst at the time. Sometimes Emily would have to go upstairs and lie down on the floor, a thing I've done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's such a thing as, and it's not even pretending to be an extrovert. It's just living in society, just live in society. But then you have to recharge. And she had a desperate need for privacy that her family did seem to respect once the responsibilities were done. You know, she had a really early age for the time, stopped going to church. I mean, solitude was her church, she said. I am left here alone in all my glory, she would write. Mm -hmm. She even said, quote, some keep Sabbath going to church. I keep it staying at home. Something I can relate to at this point in my life. <laughs> well, we're all kind of staying at home. It's only the <laughs> introverts among us that are prospering. That's right. <laughs> and I'm just going to throw this out here because learning this made me a better friend, made me a better person in my family. The difference between an extrovert and an introvert is an extrovert gets energized around people. An introvert gets drained of energy. Now, it's not like we're vampires. I am an extrovert. Beckett is not. <laughs> But uh, I don't suck her dry of energy because I'm aware of it. 
So extroverts, you just need to be aware that if the person says they want to stay in, they're not being shy. They just need to stay in to energize, just like you're going to go out to the party and energize. That's all. I just wanted to throw that in there because it was like the greatest thing I learned at one point in my life. I was like, oh, I get it. I'm so sorry that I you know, pestered my friends to come out on a Friday night when all they wanted to do was stay in and watch Miami Vice or whatever was on. <laughs> I think Miami Vice. Holy moly. <laughs> I don't remember. I think that's the same era as like Love Boat, right? And the original Fantasy Island. I was a small child during both of those. <sighs> okay. I'm just letting you know. I'm And I am just dating myself. <laughs> well, so yeah, I guess on the introvert, like spectrum. I just want to say it doesn't mean we're shy. It doesn't mean we're afraid of you. Sometimes Mm -mm. it just means we're all done people. Right. For the time being. Right. Um, Reappearance TBD. So it's not sad. Mm -mm. There's no need to to pity. We're perfectly happy. Mm -mm. So she started to structure her alone time in order to have time to write her letters. She had an extensive correspondence with friends who had come and gone from Amherst Academy and come into and out of her life and really wanted to um, like keep that up. And so she made a habit when she was alone of sitting down at her little tiny table, <laughs> um, so tiny, it's almost like a nightstand, and do her letter writing. That was her task that she set herself. It was a source of great enjoyment. As early as 14, she realized that her writing was becoming ever more important to her and wrote to one of her friends, all is prepared. I am ready. Mm-hmm. Burgeoning tranquility was absolutely smashed when she was 14 by the death of her best friend and cousin, Sophia Holland. It shocked her to the absolute core. Her grief, her surprise, her um, just it just went into the inside of her. And she started to have a little bit of a obsession is too strong a word, maybe focus about death and immortality. The questions just truly shook her. The questions, where did we go? Where did we come from? What happened? Where is Sophia right now? Will I ever see her again? You know, those kind of questions. Can't I call her back? Can anyone talk to her? I mean, it was just very, um, the bargaining stage maybe of grief lasted uh, a long time. And from here, from my desk, which is bigger than hers, by the way, <laughs> it looks like the beginning stages of what would later become, for, for lack of a better word, the eccentricity of this focus, you know, started mm-hmm. here at 14. Mm-hmm. Well, this was, I mean, people died around her all the time, but this one was someone that was close to her and she was able to see Sophia right before she died. So she was right there, you know, she knew what happened and it just touched her at a time in her life, 14, Ooh, all yeah, kinds of things. It was hard. Yeah. That's talk about life changing event. 
She was actually um, so bad that her parents pulled her out of school and sent her to her aunt's house in Boston. And her aunt took her about to plant shows and arboretums and all kinds of things to um, kind of shake her out of her melancholy. Mm -hmm. During her last semester at Amherst Academy, another girl came into their class, Susan Huntington Gilbert. She was actually just a few days younger than Emily and her parents had both died. She was at the time living with a sister in Amherst, although she was going back and forth to uh, Utica, New York, where she lived with her aunt. But for one semester, Susan Huntington Gilbert was a friend, an acquaintance, not part of the five of Emily Dickinson. So she orbited the circle of five. That's right. That's called foreshadowing. <laughs> Well, at the age of 17, after she was done with Amherst Academy, Emily was sent 11 miles down the road to the Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. It cost Papa a lot of money. $60 doesn't seem like a lot of money, but $2,000 is what it cost um, in tuition um, in today's money. Papa is such a strange contradiction. He's so severe at home that Emily... <laughs> hid the fact that she could not tell time from her father until she was 15 years of age because she was just afraid he would pop off. <laughs> she never learned it and she was afraid at a certain point, like, I can no longer ask. <laughs> what time is it? <laughs> oh, that's funny. She also, I, mean, I wonder how much sneaking was going on because her and Austin like to read the same type of books. And according to Papa, these were not books that, girls should be reading. They would, I think he said, joggle their minds. So they would sneak books out of Papa's own library and read them in secret. So I wonder what else secret was going on. Well, many academic men thought that education harmed a woman's brain and took all the blood away from her frail body and the production of children. I guess in the best possible way, they were like, oh, but we don't want to you know, disqualify you from your calling by ruining your constitution as a child. Well, so weird. Papa sent his daughter to college and even Emily said, Papa buys me books and begs me not to read them. <laughs> they uh, look so pretty on the shelves. Maybe you can color coordinate them. <laughs> so I don't know. But when she was at college, she studied her old friend, botany, rhetoric, public speaking, which she hated anatomy, spicy, algebra, astronomy, piano, which she was great at, singing, and ecclesiastical history. Well, Mount Holyoke did teach all those things, but they taught them through a lens of Christianity. The whole purpose of the school was to train women to become missionaries or preacher's wives, maybe teachers, but all through Christ. As part of the curriculum, there were thrice weekly sermons done by Mary Lyons, who was the founder, not only of Mount Holyoke, but we talked about her during the Fanny Farmer episode, as she was also the founder of Wheaton Female Seminary, also hmm. in Massachusetts. Yeah, so same woman, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's a chain, but she's opening up these women's colleges in Massachusetts at this point. As part of those sermons, they really were sermons that she was giving, she did ask all the girls to stand and ask them if they were ready to commit their lives to Christ and to confirm their faith. And if they were, to just simply stand up. And Emily did not stand up. 
She wasn't alone, though. It's often made it sound like she was sitting there by herself, but she was never alone in sitting. Although, in her own words, she said, I am standing alone in rebellion. I believe and disbelieve 100 times an hour. Mm. Yeah, she put, I think, put a lot of thought into this. She didn't just want to stand up for the sake of standing up. She really wanted to be led and felt moved to say, yes, I'm giving my life to Christ. She did tell her friend Abaya Root, there is a great deal of religious interest here, and I have not yet given up the claims of Christ, but trust that I am not entirely thoughtless on so important a lesson and subject. So honestly, I think she's probably giving this a heck of a lot more thought than most of those women there. That's just me, Susan Vollenweider, speculating. (laughs) That's probably true. Even though she was giving it all this thought and she wanted to be moved to make her proclamation. She was categorized by the administration, by Mrs. Lyons, as a no-hoper, as in there's no hope for her. There's no way that she's ever going to stand up. She's never going to proclaim her faith here. (laughs) There's an advantage to being called a no-hoper, though. I mean, (laughs) well, especially for one of a contrary contrary nature, like... hmm. Yeah. But by the end of the year, there were still 30 out of the class of 230 sitting. So she wasn't alone at all. Right. Yeah. But she was homesick and she did have a couple episodes of being sick, like a cough. It's not sure why she left, but at the end of the year, she left Mount Holyoke and she wasn't going to come back. Well, at the time, she blamed Papa. Um, Seemed reasonable. A lot of girls didn't come back. 80% of her class didn't return. So many girls left, often, of course, to get married. But Emily did not want to become a teacher, certainly didn't want to become a missionary. So what was to become of her? Well, increasingly, her feeling was that she would become a writer, was already, in fact, a writer. Her family at home was accustomed to her shutting herself up in her room and working at her tiny table until the wee hours of the morning. Wait until you see it. We'll put a picture of it up. It's, it's like hard to understand that someone could work at that table. A sort of accidental publication gave her some juice, you know, for that feeling. Emily was known for her witty valentines. She had a wide circle of friends and acquaintances that benefited from her pen on this holiday. Remember Julia Child's valentines? Oh, yes. Those are so cute. Famous one in the bathtub. Um, Commercial production of Valentine's is in its infancy. Actually, a graduate of Mount Holyoke named Esther Howland is sort of credited with the first successful commercial production of Valentine's. She sent her brother out to kind of drum up some business. She thought it would be, I don't know, $120 would be great. Return on my investment, (laughs) $5,000. And in this day's money, $160,000 on her one holidays experiment. (laughs) So it worked. But Emily disdained such commercialism, you know, such impersonalness. I know that's not a word. (laughs) So she liked to write long valentines in a style entirely new, and one of them made its way into print. George Gould, who was a childhood friend of hers, actually he was Austin's age, one of his circle of friends, and he may have had a relationship romantic with Emily. He may have courted her a little bit, a heavy accent on May. 
But he did get his hands on one of her poems, and he just happened to be the editor of the Amherst College newspaper, the Amherst Indicator. And he published one of her poems anonymously on Valentine's Day. So it starts out sort of Latin-esque. Magnum bonum, harem scarum, zounds a zounds a war alarum, man reform, life perfectum, mundum changum, all things florum. Which reminded me, fans of community, of donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> <laughs> it's well, and I can't sing the rest of it, but it's a whole series of kind of nonsense words in that rhyme scheme, like Emily did with this one. It was just so <laughs> hilarious to me. I was like, why is donde esta la biblioteca? Blue Tech is stuck in my head today. And Emily Dickinson, <laughs> part of the rest of it is just intense. I guess that's a word that we can apply to Emily Dickinson. You see that picture of her, that photo of her, with her hair parted down the middle at about this age. And you think, oh, spinster who sits at home and never sees anybody. Well, did we learn our lesson about Jane Austen? Demanding <laughs> people bring her um, wine by the fireplace and being the source of wit. Well, we should have because Emily Dickinson is um, a passionate person. Anyway, here's the rest part of the rest of that Valentine. The world is sleeping in ignorance and error, sir, and we must be crowing cocks, singing larks, a rising sun to awake her or else we'll pull society up to the roots and plant it in a different place. We will blow out the sun and the moon and encourage invention. Alpha shall kiss Omega. We will ride up the hill of glory. Alleluia, which we all have to admit is a lot more than love on a candy heart. <laughs> My favorite part is in the second stanza. She's trying to get this person to meet her somewhere. It actually begins with, sir, I desire an interview. Meet me at sunrise or sunset or the new moon. The place is immaterial and not to see merely, but a chat, sir, or a tete-a-tete. A confab, a mingling of opposite minds is what I propose. That sounds so modern to me, like this list. I didn't know confab was a word back then. I, I <laughs> There we go. I keep thinking that that word confabulation sounds like another Mark Twainism, but of course, hmm. who's to say? Linguists, we need to hear from you. So the intro to this poem, which as far as I know, she did not know was going to be in the paper, says... I wish I knew who the author was. I think she must have some spell by which she quickens the imagination and causes the high blood to run frolic through the veins. Okay, A, he did know, most likely. B, <laughs> well, because, I mean, he says he didn't know. Yeah. But is there a vast pool of passionate wordsmiths willing to send him a long, inappropriate valentine? Just to, He has a vast <laughs> pool of them? Or could he narrow it down, probably? <laughs> it's Maybe. what I'm saying. Yeah, there's ar I'm going to just say that there's arguments out there that he honestly didn't know it was her. So, there you go. I do believe she wrote him a letter. I do believe she wrote a lot of Valentines just along these same lines to other people anonymously. N not naughty, but definitely suggestive. Yeah. I wrote saucy. Saucy. Right. That's good. No, that's really good. Saucy. Saucy. I yeah. just almost think, and I am going back to the Lady Mary Montague podcast episode now. So Lady Mary, for those of you who haven't listened to that yet, hung out with a lot of other writers. And when something of hers was published any place, or you got a hold of a paper with that written on it, everybody's like, ooh, I recognize this. Mm -hmm. And they sort of knew it was her. And I'm kind of wondering, 
Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, yeah, I, I understand. No, I kind of agree with you, but I just wanted to say that there's other yeah. theories right. out there. Like, although we could say that on nearly every page of our notes. <laughs> Anyway, who wouldn't like such a review? A sentiment, honestly, which is shared today by many fans of Emily's work. Um, to fans of Emily's poetry, she does cause the blood to run frolic through their veins. So um, he wasn't wrong. No. But publication was tricky. Counterindicated by society, for one thing. By mm. Papa, mm. really. Um, by her own temperament. Also, and while the public didn't benefit from her view of the world, she had dozens of correspondents who did. She sent her poetry to them within letters on separate pieces of paper so they could paste them in their own scrapbooks. And her sometimes cockamamie stream of consciousness <laughs> letters, you know, if only she could have had a blog or Twitter. Emily Dickinson, <laughs> I say this is perfect, would have been perfect for social media you know mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep and she comes with a, a base of followers <laughs> all of her correspondence she was so active in letter writing you know she right. took it very seriously a lot of people didn't you know they'd write letters but not like she did Immersed in what she was increasingly viewing as her true calling, Emily was growing more and more resentful of the demands that the outside world placed on her time. The extraordinarily high standards of housekeeping in her house, for one thing, robbed her of time. God, when Venny went away to school. Oh, it was all stuck on her. Vinny didn't go to Mount Holyoke. She went off to the Ipswich Female Seminary, which was actually the original women's college that Mary Lyons modeled both Wheaton and Mount Holyoke after. So Vinny went back to the OG seminary. So Vinny was happy. Vinny was away. And Emily was full of rage. My two hands are but two, not four or five as they ought to be. And there are so many ones and me so very handy and my time of so little account and my writing so very needless. If I take as much as one inch on time to write, I will be castigated, not so much by my family as the world and also my own guilt. Okay, is it me or is she just a little dramatic? <laughs> I have oh, but okay. two hands. Would you like some drama? Would you like some drama, <laughs> Susan? And listeners, here I you go. Love it. She's already crushed under this pressure and then received a little commentary. She also had social obligations to receive and make calls. And she became so unable to hide her frustration and it leaked out in a spectacular way, which I love. <laughs> she brought her father his dinner and he made a comment about, I'm paraphrasing here, why, why you always got to give me the chipped plate? And she snatched it away from him, went in that backyard and pounded that <laughs> plate to powder which wasn't quiet, then made him another plate and put it in front of him. The whole family is just sitting there with their bug eyeballs, except Vinny, who was safe <laughs> at college. Just sitting there staring at her. And she said, I certainly do not want to make that mistake again. <laughs> I would just like to add as a sidebar, possibly unrelated, that this was the time where Papa hired a maid of all work. <laughs> Glorious drama. You know, sometimes you got to make your point yep. in a physical way. Yep, in a big way. Go big, go home. 
I don't know if her father was worried about her because of behavior like that or just because he was gone all the time. But about this time, Emily did meet a guy who she would love for the rest of his life and he would adore her. Papa brought home a dog. She named this Newfoundland dog Carlo, a literary reference to Jane Eyre. It was Sinjin's dog in Jane Eyre. Now, Emily Dickinson is not a very large woman. Tiny 5'3", based on her clothes that are still around. Carlo could have gotten up to 180 pounds of dog. Three feet from paw to the top of his head. That's huge. But they bonded immediately. And before long, Emily and Carlo were traipsing all over the woods. She signed his name to family cards. Emily, mom, dad, Austin, Vinny, and Carlo. I mean, honestly, it's almost like, can we please siphon off some of this vitality in a different direction? (laughs) I know, but she loved this dog and he, they were all over town. They were seen together all over town. And Newfoundlands are such great dogs. They're very loyal. They're huge, but they're very gentle. And within the next 10 years, there were five other dogs named Carlo registered in Amherst, including a Newfoundland. I keep thinking, though, that since Jane Eyre was such a bestseller, Mm -hmm. that there might have been a lot of dogs named Carlo. Carlo, yeah. I like to think of Emily as being the trailblazer. Another person, an actual person this time, who found a very special place in Emily's heart was her friend Susan Gilbert. And about this time, she moved back to Amherst, as did Austin, who had been away at school, and he began to court her. Susan Huntington Gilbert was born on December 19th, 1830, um, and she was the youngest of six children, but was unfortunately bereft of parents. By the time she was only 11 years old and made her home with assorted siblings, she had come to Amherst to live with a married sister and had gone away to teach at a girl's school for a while and had now come back to make her home with that same sister. Upon her return, she and Emily became the greatest of friends. They were both so uh, intelligent in Sort of the same odd way Emily was just turned up to, you know, 11. Um, (laughs) Susan was also a writer, also wrote poetry. And they spent their time wandering the woods hand in hand and in general just having a good old best friend time from the outside. And herein lies a controversy that we are just going to have to lay out for you. There are two schools of thought about the relationship between Emily Dickinson and Sue Gilbert at this time. One is that they were just the best of friends, kindred spirits, bosom buddies. The other was that they were romantically involved. I honestly think that there's just as much evidence for both. So I'm not going to be able to call this one. I would love to say that they were romantically involved because there's just isn't enough role models. So I would love to be able to say that. I can't confirm it. 
the, I guess the controversy comes down to is their friendship, which is intense and passionate and full of just imagery in the things Emily writes that could be interpreted in a more than it's definitely romantic. I'm telling you right now. So it is romantic as heck. Mm-hmm. Does that does that also transcend into a sexual relationship? That mm-hmm. is something that people cannot prove. Right. So saying that, I just wanted to tell you, there's definitely a meeting of the hearts. She wrote things like this to her. I think of you, dear Susie, now. I don't know how or why, but more dearly as every day goes by. And that sweet month of promise draws nearer and nearer. And I view July so differently than what I used to. Once it seemed parched and dry, and I hardly loved it any on account of its heat and dust. But now, Susie, month of all the year, the best. I skip the violets and the dew and the early rose and the robins. I will exchange them all for that one angry and hot noonday when I can count the hours and minutes before you come. Oh my. I'm just telling you. I know. I know. And the argument is that at the time women were had language like that. They talked really flowery and very romantic to each other to a degree. Dot, dot, dot. Well, and then there's this, though. And honestly, if somebody wrote this to me, I would be like, I'm going to block you. Don't you run, Susie, dear, for I won't do any harm. And I do love you dearly, though I do feel so frightful. Uh, I think I am out of here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I will link you to this book in part of episode two when we talk about the books. There is actually a book that has pulled all of those very romantic letters into a um, collection called Open This Carefully. I just find it very interesting to go in deeply on both sides and then mm-hmm. just... Because, you know, the, unless you go back and talk to Emily, you won't know and maybe even not then. Yeah. So there's that. We would be remiss because it actually... They stayed so close for 30 years. And there was a period of six weeks when her family went to Washington, D.C., and she said she didn't want to go because, you know, she's not so good in a crowd. So when her father got elected to Congress and everybody went, she didn't. And she stayed behind in a house with no one but Sue. Well, and all the servants, you know, lawn guys and everything and and the dog. But really, it was just a six-week vacation in a place the house she loved with solitude, which she also loved, and Mm -hmm. Sue, which evidently she also loved. So it was Mm -hmm. like a wonderful six-week time. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that happened. Bad news for the relationship between Emily and Sue, because Austin began to court Sue properly. Mm -hmm. In a societally acceptable way. Mm -hmm. So we have set up, perhaps, at least in Emily's mind, a, a rivalry. When Emily was 25, her family finally persuaded her to go to Washington, D.C. Papa had been serving in Congress. Yes, he was a Whig. Anti-new states coming in as slave states, but curiously not anti-slavery as such. He is the man of contradictions. Another contradiction, Emily herself Because in the Society of Washington, D.C., she was knowledgeable about politics and literature and, I quote, dazzled her father's colleagues. She reached into some reserve. 
fellow introverts that we all have when you have to get along out in society, you might as well just pull out the razzle dazzle. <laughs> Vinny and Emily really were on a self-guided tour of Washington. They had a very meaningful moment at Mount Vernon. They met new people. They went to formal dinners. And at one of these dinners, she was served a flaming dessert. And she turned to the man sitting next to her and said, Oh, sir, may one eat of hellfire with impunity here? (laughs) In a time when eating a piece of cheese was considered a very gothic (laughs) for a lady. Yeah, there you go. She went on a side trip to Philadelphia where she met a man, Minister Charles Wadworth, who she called her spiritual mentor and confidant. He was a married man, a father of two, and also a recipient of intense letters from her for many years. In 1855, when Emily was 25, two things happened to her father. One was not so great. One was really wonderful. The not so great one is he ran for re-election and lost. He got trounced. He got his booty handed to him on a wooden platter. It was not bueno. It was so, mm -mm, nope, not good. No. I think the days of the wigs were over. That's the thing. Yes, yes. He did, of course, have a career to go back to, a practice, a law practice in Amherst. So that's what he did. And now that he's back in town, coincidentally, the merchant who had bought the homestead, the house that his father had built, died. And he had the wherewithal to buy it again. He bought 11 acres around it. So it was, again, surrounded by orchards. For him, it was reclamation of a family legacy. It was redemption. It was clearing of his father's name Mm -hmm. and, you know, the family's name. But for Emily, it was an uprooting. It was a giant wobble, and it made her very, very unhappy. He did put some work into the house before the family moved in. He put in some major renovations. He had a new kitchen and a laundry space built. He added a veranda, which is a covered porch on the side of a house, He built a conservatory tucked into a corner on the south side of the house so Emily could grow her exotic plants and flowers in the wintertime. That is like the most thoughtful thing I can even imagine. Their relationship was kind of complicated, but that was so thoughtful. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. As far as the house goes, uh, Emily's room looks an awful lot like a certain set of a TV show, except the fireplace was a wood stove instead of an actual fireplace. Um, She had a lot of space. She could use an attic ladder to get up to the cupola, 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 cupola. What's it called? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I should make a supercut of the things that you do that to. Like where I'm like, you know, where are you going to (laughs) stop? Cupola, 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 cupola. You don't let me answer, and also I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> the tower. The tower. <laughs> oh, do we leave that in? Sure. Okay. When Squire Fowler had built the house, it was red. The house was painted red. It was customary to paint brick houses. It was repainted to a mustard color. So if you see the house now and it's yellow and it's yellow brick and you're like, wow, that's awfully cheery for the 1800s. That was actually a color that this house was. It's historically accurate. So I thought it was interesting that it was red and then it was yellow. 
when I and think red of- is hard to paint over, so good for them. Yes, right. This is so relatable. When she was writing to a friend later about the move, she put the move like this. I cannot tell you how we moved. I had rather not remember (laughs) (laughs) to move from one house on one street over a few blocks to another one. She compared it to, and I quote, going to Kansas (laughs) in a covered wagon, I'm assuming. Like all of your belongings on the vehicle behind you and you're exhausted and just like letting your head. Like, Bob, <laughs> horses, hooves. <laughs> well, she was not super excited about this move. She said something to the effect of, people say home is where the heart is. I say home is where the house is. <laughs> but, but like, so she didn't want to move. But, but anyway, she did. She's the daughter of the house. Papa's excited. There is no way he's letting this house slip you know, from Mm -hmm. his fingers again. There's no way that was as inevitable as a sunrise that he was going to take his family back there. The bad thing about this probably slash possibly related to the move, Mama fell ill. Modern scholars seem to think she went into a major depression, probably at leaving her house, her home that she had Uh made for these people in the other house with the extensive garden and the fig trees and just every bit of it, every corner of it, which she used to prowl around on a Sunday, just make a mental list of things she could do to improve the house. I mean, so Uh she got wrenched out of her project, I mean, of, Uh of her life, really, and then put in this other house. And so she went into a giant decline dangerously so. And Emily found the calls on her time increased greatly. And now we're looking at stolen time, snatched pieces of life, crumbs of solitude. And at one point at breakfast, Papa thought she looked haggard. (laughs) Haggard, he said. (laughs) And rather than forbid her her writing, which we know him a little bit, and I'm like, "Mm," he's like 30 seconds from doing that. He instead gave her permission to sleep late and miss breakfast. Okay, I'm going to add another story that's going to show even why that was even bigger. After Emily came back from Mount Holyoke, she still had to live under her father's rules. He treated her just like she had been, you know, just a kid again. He went so far as to being so strict that any letter she wrote or came into the house had to be read aloud. I know. That's like having the GPS tracker on your 26-year-old child. Right, right. And then one time they had gone to see Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, the singer, who Emily thought that she liked better as a celebrity rather than a singer. But she wrote to Austin about the night and about their father. She said, he sat all evening looking mad and silly and yet so amused that you would have died laughing. When the performers bowed, he said, good evening, sir. And when they retired, very well, that will do. It wasn't sarcasm (laughs) exactly, nor it wasn't disdain. It was as if old Abraham had come to see the show and thought it was all very well, but a little excess of monkey. (laughs) It was like... There was too much uh, flopping about. You know what I mean? Like excess of monkey. That's how I read that. I like that. And you know, it kind of gives me a little insight. I think that sometimes people are put in a box too early. And I think he, as the oldest son of nine, Mm -hmm. with his father's reputation and the family's name to reclaim, got a lot put on him. And he became very 
buttoned up. And it's stuff like that that makes me like leaking out, you know, mm-hmm. that makes me wonder had he been part of a Mary Circle, like, you know, had he been in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and a friend of Mr. Bingley's and able to dance, would he have been a different guy, <laughs> you know? Um, oh, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. But that just goes to show you how big of a deal that he saw his daughter in such emotional distress that he told her to sleep in. Yeah. And he built her the conservatory. I still can't get over that. They're like magnets. Sometimes they're attracted to each other and sometimes they repel. It's just interesting. Yeah, Yeah, that's family. Oh, yeah. So do we want another slap? Well, we don't, but we're going to get one anyway. Emily's brother, Austin, married Susan Gilbert when Emily was 26. And to keep his son in Amherst, Papa built a house right next door for him, ultimately called the Evergreens. I mean, say what you will about Emily and Susan's romantic involvement, and I'm not entering the fray again. In 1856, Susan had only one choice if she wanted a respectable future. You know, marriage to a man of property, production of children. Susan had no indulgent papa to take care of things and build her a conservatory, you know? Right. Um, Though I will say her brothers did give her a dowry that they bought furniture with. So there are male relatives, but nevertheless, to secure her own future, she pretty much had to get married. Now, when you say had to get married, she was not pregnant at the time. I just wanted to throw that in for Dickinson. No, no, no. I meant had to get married to exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I know. It's that her being pregnant when they got married was actually a plot point on Apple TV's show Dickinson, which wasn't the case at all. That's all. Right. So they didn't get that part right. That was actually just for dramatic effect. If you listen to what we're talking about, you'll see all the things that they did get right, which is a lot. Okay, maybe Wiz Khalifa as death, not so much. But I'm telling you right now, Wiz Khalifa as death is just as close to Baron Samdi. I mean, Marie Laveau (laughs) would recognize Baron Samdi in Wiz Khalifa's (laughs) representation of death. I actually think that's kind of, whoa, that's a deep cut, but okay. So that's actually the only real part of that show that I like. We should talk about that later in media. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yes, we should. (laughs) I will say before the wedding, Emily wrote to her friend, I have heard all about your journal. Oh, Susie, that you should come to this. I want you to get the journal bound at my expense, Susie. So when he takes you from me to live in his new home, I may have some of you. I am sincere. She was heartbroken. And Why this happened, I don't know. Sue did have family in Albany, and Austin and Sue got married in Albany, and no Dickinsons were there. It's not that far away. I mean, it's far, but it's not like days and days away. So... I, part of me is like, oh my gosh, it's because everybody was so upset. But then part of me is like, no, that's where her family lived. So for the next 30 years, these two women lived next door to each other. Evidently, a path got worn through the hedge from all of the traveling back and forth. But acutely in the moment, this was just one more thing to battle her brother for. Her father always and openly preferred Austin to both of his daughters. This is a man who wrote published essays about women keeping to their own sphere. Seems like in these days in his house, until you're grown up, everyone's to be educated equally. And then somehow at 18, the dudes get a stairway to heaven and the women folk get the rug pulled out from under them. 
So Susan, this mathematics genius, this accomplished poet, was planning the menus in one house, and Emily was writing poetry on the backs of envelopes or whatnot while working in the kitchen in another. So Austin got the praise, the house, the respect, the college education, the freedom, and Susan. Oh my goodness. That is fraught with tension. And Mm -hmm. I think that is where we are going to end our story of Emily Dickinson in part one. There was a lot to say. And we haven't even read you more than part of one poem. (laughs) So many poems. So many poems. Now we have all the players in place. We have Emily grown up. We have her identifying as a poet. She has made her decision on her life path. And I think that is a good place to stop. So we are going to leave media for next time. You might, if you wish. Just a little note. There is a show, as Susan has referenced, on Apple Plus called Dickinson. Susan loves it very much. I would say to watch it after you know the whole story, just so I agree. Don't be confused, but, uh, you know, you're grownups. I'm not the boss of you. <laughs> Do what you will. It is there. It is uh, um, not to be um, missed. I have only watched two episode one. So um, anyway, we will see you back here. Same place, same time. The Pinterest board will be up as soon as this episode is published. And I will just keep adding to it. Thanks for listening. Bye. Just a quick word on the music, since we are leaving media till the second part of this episode. The song in the middle is Village Song by Cello Journey. And the song at the end is I Walk Alone by Ash Ganley. And I have put some bloopers in the middle of the song because sometimes you just have to see the cockamamie antics behind the curtain. See you next time. I walk alone Through dying fields This place I know Is all too real I'm on my own And I got no place to go But here
go to Mount Holyoke. She went a little farther to it. It's it's switch. It's switch. Mm. It's switch. It's switch. Are you going to say it's switch again before I go yeah. on? Or? No, yes, I am. Okay, okay. sorry. Go ahead and say that sentence again. Yeah. Um, Vinny didn't go to Mount Holyoke, just down the road a piece. Uh, she went to Ipswich Female Cemetery, which was the original. Nope, no, she didn't, though. Where'd she go? Because she, she was alive. Who was alive? <laughs> um, future Susan, you will know what I mean. Go ahead and just say your sentence again. Okay. <laughs> you said she was at the cemetery, and I was like, I don't oh, think cemetery. So. Oh, cemetery. <laughs> she's like, she's at the female cemetery, and I thought, I don't really think so because, as far as I know, she comes back in the story. <laughs> Incontinence. <laughs> I don't even remember what the word was supposed to be. Um, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> oh, countenance. Countenance incontinence. Long-term listeners will know that's a malapropism Susan made in the Jane Austen episode. She was full uh, of continence. Anyway. <laughs> uh, 